Welcome to the Developing Your Football World podcast at British Football Coaches Network. This episode guest is Johnny McKinstry, who talks to us about transitioning into international management, coaching for Sierra Leone, Rwanda and Uganda, and also club positions in Lithuania and Bangladesh. Enjoy. Johnny, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Yeah, no, it's great to it's great to be here and looking forward to having a, a good chat. Well, it's going to be really interesting to talk to you because I've, I've followed you for a long time and I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will be familiar with you because, as I said to you before, a lot of coaches do like to live vicariously through others and you and your career would be a standout example to a lot of people who who want to go and work abroad and who want to work at the levels you've worked at. So it's been really, really interesting to talk to you today. And it will be a lot of use to, to many aspiring coaches. You're quite young yourself, aren't you? And you've done a lot for someone of your age. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes I have to remind myself of that. You know, I've probably got a few more grey hairs than most people my age. Um, it seems uh, it, it seems like I feel a lot older, but I do have to remind myself I'm only 36. Um, but it's been sort of 20 years in the game, you know, and 20 years in football from grassroots through the senior level is, you know, in some ways it seems like 20 years packed into one year, but in other ways it seems like 40 years. So, um, um, yeah, it's it's young, but uh, you know, I definitely feel older than my years many days. Before we go into your career, looking at it through uh, chronologically, I would like to ask a question about that because you took on the national team job at Sierra Leone at 27. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Uh, being fairly young in such a important role, have you ever felt that it has been a barrier for you? Um, I think in the early years of my sort of move into the professional game, it was definitely something that came up regularly. Um, it doesn't come up anymore. It's never it's never something that's asked in interviews anymore. Um, but definitely, probably, I obviously was the Sierra Leone coach and then the Rwanda coach, and then I moved into club football. But probably my first three roles still the age factor was a factor in clubs and associations making a decision and in fact missed out on a couple of really you know roles that I was really interested in and the feedback was we just felt we needed to go for someone older um, which can sometimes be galling when you see that maybe your track record is from my perspective anyway more more significant and more firm than some other people who get the roles and that the reason is that they feel, you know, when you're 32, maybe at the time, that they'd rather go for the 40-year-old coach and the 32-year-old coach because they think you being the same age as the players would be a problem, which is interesting because it doesn't reflect then that the success we had in previous roles ever, it clearly wasn't a problem because we, we gained success and improvement in them. So, yeah, it definitely... For the first sort of, I would say, five years of my career in the pro game, it was something that was, it was always there. Um, whereas definitely now, even though I'm still probably one of the younger people that clubs or associations are talking to about positions, it's not something that comes up anymore because they look at 10 years now in the pro game and, you know, the age just sort of disappears. I can, <laughs> I think... Uh... Sure, it was uh, Pete Sturgis, who 
mm-hmm. about this a lot, where as someone who is getting towards the advanced years, he's still able to relate to players because he stays uh, fairly modern. And a lot of experienced coaches, maybe in their, in their 50s and 60s, are still really good at relating to young players because they've kept up with what's going on. They can speak the same language as the kids. And so I think to add to what you're saying, a lot of it is uh, it's a mentality thing. If you are able to relate to players, it doesn't matter what age you are, but it, it seems like a, yeah. a strange stigma. And I know from my own experience that parents and players suddenly gave me a lot more respect when I got grey hair and started to look like I was 40. <laughs> it was kind of uh, unwarranted. Yeah, well, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm told I look uh, 10 years older with a beard now, so maybe that will um, add to that gravitas, <laughs> definitely. I'm, I'm told when, I, when, I, when I'm clean shaven, I look a lot younger. Oh, yeah. Now, let's go right to the start. What were your first steps into coaching? Um, well, same as a lot of people probably listening in, in terms of grassroots game, um, I was sort of a very just a normal run-of-the-mill sort of player growing up in Ireland. Um, but in my head, I just, I always, you know, football, and not just football, sport in general, but football in particular, um, just captivated me. And, you know, I used to go every week and watch Irish League football. And, you know, so probably by the time I was 16, I'd racked up maybe four or 500 games as a spectator in the stands watching a live football, which... You know, it's just irreplaceable, really. It's As you know, it's completely different than watching games on the TV. And so for me, I got to that stage where it was obvious that I wasn't going to have a, a career as a pro player. But I just, I don't know, even growing up playing for the teams that I played with, I always had a sense... I always had an opinion, basically. I was probably the player that a lot of youth coaches hated because, you know, even at 15 or 16, had an opinion about where I should be playing or where, you know, Joe should be playing or where Jimmy should be playing or whatever it was. You know, at 15, 16, I was already having those opinions because I clearly, without knowing it, had a tactical understanding of the game. And, and yeah, it was just a case of, okay, how do you get involved in this? And at 16, going and doing your basic coaching badges back then, they were like, they're called the Mini Soccer Leaders Award and the Junior Team Managers Award. So predating level one and level two. I went and did those and you start coaching, you know, the local, I don't know, it was like an under nines team I got involved in a couple of nights a week, as well as when I was still playing and still at school. And then coaching the mini soccer centres around Northern Ireland and the summer camps. And, you know, at that stage, it's just, you know, it's great because you're getting a bit of money for, for coaching kids. Um, and really, that's just, it just took off from there. You know, I really enjoyed it. Um, obviously, people asked me to come back, so I must have been doing something right. And and yeah, just really, it took off from there. You know, for me, I really enjoyed it. I was able to earn a bit of money doing it. Um, and and it was just really progressive from there. The thing about football coaching is it was never on the uh, careers advice or the guidance council school. And yet now it's actually becoming a viable career. There's so many opportunities. And it's good to see a lot of colleges now starting to include uh, BTECs. And I wonder what would we have done if they'd actually had something more specific like that when when I first started. But, so your first role abroad, was that working for the Red Bulls? 
Yeah, so I'd moved from Ireland, just sort of to step back a couple of years, I'd moved from Ireland over to England to go to university. And so whilst I was at university, if you can consider that overseas for me anyway, sort of working, you know, for Newcastle United's football in the community, coaching a local under-16s team, coaching the university team, who we went on and won the British sort of universities championships with. And, you know, so again, coaching all my age mates. So this idea, you know, for me of coaching people the same age as you started when I was 20 um, because I was coaching um, the university team and people who I was in class with, I was then coaching in the evenings. And so, but then from that, moving into sort of a full-time role, yes, at the end of university, got offered the opportunity to go over to New York and work with the New York Red Bulls in their sort of pre-academy department. So at that time, academies in the US only started at sort of 15 years of age and so what you then had was this pre-academy department that had players from 8 until 14 in it that for New York spanned the entire tri-state area so it was tryout based you had to pass sort of a tryout stage to be in the program but I actually thought it was a fantastic idea because what it meant was instead of having the best 20 10-year-olds in an academy setup, we had 80 10-year-olds in this pre-academy. So at every age category, you had sort of 80 to 100 players training at different centers around the tri-state area. And so by the time you got to 14, you'd been able to monitor this wider net of players for four, five, six years. And then when it's time to create academy teams, you really, you know, know what you're getting um, and you can then commit to those players for a, a period of whatever it is, two, four years. And yeah, it was good to help them keep the net wide, but that's sort of the role I had in New York for a few years. With this being your first step, uh, well, if you're not including going to Newcastle or overseas, this being your first step across the pond to a different country, was it easier for you considering the cultural and language links of the US? Yeah, I think ultimately when you're going into somewhere where you're able to communicate, you know, communication is is the most important thing in, in coaching. And um, if you're unable to communicate your ideas in a sort of succinct and clear way, then you're struggling from the very beginning. And so going into an environment where it's the same language Largely, obviously, there's some certain differences in terms of how Americans and the, the British Irish sort of, you know, use terminologies, etc. But, yeah, no, it was very good. It, it helped. I think also being Irish helped as well, you know, coming from Ireland, because definitely there is anyone who's went to the United States will know there is definitely a difference in how people from the UK, England are received in the United States to how people from Ireland, North or South are received. Um, I would definitely say it's a lot warmer if you're from an Irish background. <laughs> and so I think that helped as well. I think Irish is the one thing you hear Americans most frequently say. Like, my great-grandfather is a, a quarter Irish, and therefore <laughs> I, I, that's the one I, I heard the most. So they never really claimed many of the other nationalities in their ancestry. No. Not anything compared to, to Irish Islanders, and particularly around St. Patrick's Day, it came out all the time you just want to drink it's all right that's fine um, <laughs> after that how long was it before you've gone from red bulls to the right to dream academy in ghana yeah so we basically they they dovetailed with each other in a sense we 
I was working with New York and I got, you know, Tom Vernon, who people might know the name of. He's the owner of FC Northland now and owns the Right to Dream sort of academy, which is expanding across Africa. And Tom and I had been to Right to Dream for a summer when I was in university. So we spent sort of five or six weeks um, there on what was really a prolonged job interview, because at the time I still had a year of university left. And right to dream, we're looking for a new head coach, basically. And I think I had been named Manchester United Grassroots Coach of the Year in England. Tom at the time was the head scout for Manchester United in Africa and got in contact with me and flew me out to Ghana whilst I was, as I said, still at university. And we spent five or six weeks. And look, I had a great time. It opened my eyes to a, a footballing culture environment at 20, 21 years old that I had never even conceived of. You know, if you'd asked me at, at an 18 year old, do you want to go and work in Africa? It wouldn't have even been on my radar. But after that period in, in Ghana, it really then became something of, okay, this could be a real opportunity here. And look, I went five weeks. Great time, learned loads, but it was too early for me. I was 20, 21. I wasn't ready to be like the, the, the lead coach, the head coach of this academy that was growing exponentially. But Tom and I agreed to stay in contact and we did. And then whilst I was in New York, I got a call from him and the right to dream basically had been brought on board as the consultants to set up the Craig Bellamy Foundation in Sierra Leone. And as part of that process, wanted to identify a technical director for the new academy in Sierra Leone. And Tom got in touch and they were interested in me being that person. And part of it was, look, the American season was very much, you know, I needed to make a decision at the end of the American season. And so whilst the academy in Sierra Leone wasn't going to be ready until maybe midway through the next year, I sort of needed to make a decision and needed a commitment from their side. Otherwise, I couldn't really walk away from what I was doing in New York because I had a great position, great support structure there. But they decided, yes, we want to bring you on board. And actually, it might work great if you come and work for a right to dream for six months so that you really get used to the environment. And OK, Ghana is different than Sierra Leone, but there's a lot more similarities than America and Sierra Leone. So by coming here for six or seven months, working with our players in our environment, you can really land in free time sort of six, seven months later and hit the ground running in Sierra Leone. Now, I'm going to come back to, to follow this chronologically, but you've, you've mentioned that as so 18, you would have had no idea that you'd have gone to Africa. And then since then, a large part of your career has been spent in African countries and uh, holding some quite prominent roles. So I'll ask you this. Has your pathway followed what your initial coaching ambitions were? Those ones when you were sort of 16, 17, 18, no. Um, I think at that stage, there's a great saying is you can't comprehend what you don't know. Um, there's this huge, vast world universe of things that we just don't know. We don't even know we don't know them. And they're out there. And until you sort of walk into that room or until you, you know, get hit in the face with these facts, these realities, you really have no conception of what they are, or what they would mean for you. And so for me, you know, as a as a young guy growing up in Ireland, you know, I was always someone people said I had itchy feet growing up. So people could see I would travel, you know, and it's probably a toss of a coin coming from Ireland, whether you'll be someone who stays at home your entire life or someone who travels. But for me, it was yeah, can you go and 
coach in England? Can you look at the American model and go and work in the United States? And, you know, these are the cultures that we align with, we'd seen on TV, you grew up with, really. And so the idea to go to Africa wasn't something on my radar up until, as I said, I, I visited for the first time. Um, and genuinely, I've always said, if, if, if you could bottle up one experience and give it to someone, would be that day, that night I arrived in Ghana when I was 20 years old and just the drive out to the academy, which took like 90 minutes. If I could bottle that experience and give it to people just for them to have, that's the one, yeah, because it, it was life-changing, really. What was life-changing about it? I just think it's, as I said, you, until you are faced with these new realities and and how people are and, and the passion people have and the warmth people have and, and you know, the idea that the material things that I think we surround ourselves with in the West and consider quite important, when you go into these other environments, it, it, you just see all that sort of almost melt away a little bit. And that you can you can not just cope and survive, but actually you know flourish with very little, and and people's just drive and determination to not let what they don't have get in the way. And one of the big things I have in my career now, even working with players, is look, let's not spend time on what what we or someone can't do. Let's worry about what they can do, and and I think that's a big thing is that. You know, whether you're in Ireland or England or America, you know, we spend a lot of time sitting around talking about what we're not able to do. When, in fact, if we focused a bit more on what we can do, then we probably would move forward a lot quicker. And, yeah, I just think going into that environment in Ghana for the first time was just like, yeah, everything was new. Everything was, and, and for me, it's just all of a sudden the world just, you know, became 50 times bigger, 100 times bigger in, in the course of, you know, a few moments. Did you experience much uh, culture shock, particularly going over there in your early 20s in Sierra Leone and, and Ghana? How far out of your comfort zone did you feel? Or, and did the people there help you adapt and make you feel welcome? So I think yes is the answer to both of those. Um, people were extremely welcoming and extremely sort of warm. Um, I can say that genuinely about everywhere I've went, but definitely the culture shock. Um, Ghana, because the, the academy was sort of structured, allowed you to sort of experience this new world in a somewhat semi-structured environment, which was great. And so you could go out into sort of the world, but then come back into almost that safe zone of the academy. And um, when I went to Sierra Leone, the first day, it was just, I went for a week at first um, to do, to round up some scouting and then was going back to Ghana and that, but it was the first time I would ever set foot in Sierra Leone. And they had me in a hotel right on the main market street in Freetown. And I'm not joking you, this is, imagine the main street in your town. So pavements on either side, main road up the middle of it. And it was standing room only in this market and the noise and the color and, you know, just you're, there was, it was never quiet in the hotel room either because you were sort of overlooking all of this. And for me, it really was that 
it was a moment where I looked at it and went, oh, wow, have you bitten off more than you can chew here? Because it was just, it was an assault on the senses. It was so much. It was like almost the equivalent of someone bringing up five air horns and just letting them off in the room around you. It was so much that you're, you couldn't comprehend what was going on around you. And genuinely, for the first few days, I did sort of think, you know, is this the right thing? You know, am I ready for this? You know, and I did consider going back and saying, look, this is too much. But whatever it was in me was sort of like, no, let's, you know, you've gambled on this. So let's let's see where it takes you. Let's sort of jump into the pool and, and see if we can swim here. So, but definitely there was that initial Sierra Leone. It's, 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 it's all action. It's, it's full on. It's, you know, to use Jurgen Klopp's term, it's a bit rock and roll in terms of the heavy metal um, environment. And but yeah, it was. You've got to go through that little bit of nervous and tension to find out what's on the other side. Those thoughts you had in the hotel room. Am I ready for this? Uh, that is normal. So a lot of coaches listening to this are going to consider going abroad, and they're always worried about. What's it going to be like? And particularly with with imposter syndrome, everyone else knows what they're doing apart from me. They've all got it figured out, but I don't. Every coach has these these uh, these thoughts, these feelings, and these experiences. And I keep trying to say to people who are on the fence about going abroad, is that do it, even if it goes wrong, and you come home after a few days, it's not right, it's not worked out. You still learn a lot from it. You still learn something. You, you good and bad, you'll get a, an idea of what the world should be like according to you. And then you'll be stronger and better prepared for the next one, obviously, with uh, with the network, with LinkedIn. It's great to be able to talk to people and say, right, you've worked over here in this country. I'm coming out there. What's it like? What should I expect? Because there are some people that uh, do try and pull the wool over your eyes. But I think now, in 2022, we can all help each other make life a lot easier for those who are maybe a bit apprehensive maybe looking to to go somewhere but are unsure of what they expect and that's why talking to people like yourself is invaluable because you've been there and done it yeah it's going to help people and, I, I think an important point for me anyway maybe i do this differently than other people but what you're talking about in terms of so two things one was something actually my sister a bit of advice my older sister gave me a few years into my career because these moments of is it the right thing to do or not don't just happen once they happen multiple times and you're sort of caught from safe harbor to sort of pushing off you know to set sail again and um, to use that analogy and and so you know, it doesn't matter how many times you do it. Um, safe harbor is is called that for a reason. Um, that you feel comfortable where you are and to take risks again is always challenging. But one of the things my sister told me a few years back was, "Look, you're not going to jail. You can always leave. You can always quit. You know, if it if it doesn't, so you know, to take on what you're saying, you know, if you take the opportunity and it's not right." You can always walk away. You can always resign. Now, depending on what level of the game you're in and what contracts you've signed up to, that might, you know, have certain ways in which you do it. But definitely, no one is forcing you to stay anywhere. You're there because you want to be. And the moment you don't want to be there, you have that ability to walk away from it. And yeah, the other thing in terms of you're saying about like the network and finding out what places are like, it's interesting for me. I do very little research about a place before I move there. 
Um, if I know someone who has lived there or been there, I will talk to that person directly and find out their view of it. But and I obviously research football in the countries, but I don't go on and look at what is Bangladesh like to live in? What is Sierra Leone like to live in? Because you find two things on the internet. One is tourist reviews, which is not living in a country. And the other is bad news. The other is bad news. And that's what the internet is. It's tourism and bad news and cat videos. You know, that's sort of what's on the internet. And so for me, tourism and bad news is not life. And so I, if I can... And so when people say to me, was that country what you expected it to be? My genuine answer is I didn't expect it to be anything. It is what it is, and I'll experience it. And if it's not an environment I like, well, I can always leave. Um, so that's sort of my approach to that, because yeah, if you go down the rabbit hole of searching places on the internet, you know, you'll never move, you never go outside your house. Mm. So this is why I'm, I'm trying to, talk to people like yourself, get the podcast episodes and the articles out there and build the pages on the website to get that honest review from people that have been there and done it. So if we take Q8, for example, what's good about it? Well, you've got a lot of good places to travel. You've got a very comfortable Western lifestyle. It's very warm. You can make a bit of money. What's bad? Well, some of the laws are quite restrictive. You can't eat bacon or drink alcohol. And the mosque will wake you up at four in the morning and you won't be able to develop much of a social life. So try to paint the real picture of what a place is like from a coaching perspective and the perspective of someone who's going to live there and say these are the realities if this is for you apply and because a lot of coaches they are apprehensive about these places and that's why it's really great to be able to talk to yourself and you can you can help uh, paint that picture for people that are considering going to some of these places now, on that, you spent, was it five years working for the Craig Bellamy Foundation? Yeah, so in total, it was yeah, five years. So the latter two years overlapped with my time as a Sierra Leone national team coach. But yeah, in total, I was in Sierra Leone for five years. Now, that, that to me, just that, that doesn't compute. It's so amazing. So first off, there's not a lot of people in their early to mid-20s who've done five years of anything. Right, whether it's have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, own a pet, have a job. So what was it about Sierra Leone, about the project, that made you stay for five years? I think part of it was, so basically those five years were over two contract periods. I initially signed up to do two years, and then we, we agreed an extension for a further three years. Um, and it was personal growth for me. I went in initially as the technical director, so purely concerned with the football side. By the second contract, it became academy manager, where I was sort of responsible for the entire academy operating under the CEO and the board. So in essence, I, I sort of had a vision for how everything could come together, um, almost like a sporting director role, if you will. And yeah, so part of it was personal growth in terms of the things that challenged me and helped me grow, um, both on the football pitch and also in the office, because ultimately we have to understand that if you want to be in the game at a high level for a long period of time, you actually do spend an awful lot of time in your office and behind a desk. You know, it's not just out on the grass all the time. And so it helped me grow personally. But also, you know, the thing that attracted me to Sierra Leone, to the opportunity, was it was a blank canvas. 
And it was an opportunity for me to take what I had in my head, my vision of football and how to develop young players and put it into practice. And that, yes, I could take on ideas from other people, but at the end of the day, it was my call on whether we chose chose A or B. And, and for me, that was the reason I left New York. I was very comfortable in New York. I felt very supported and very, you know, sort of enabled by New York Red Bulls, fantastic club. But at the same time, you're working within their system. They give you freedom, but you're in their system. And that's fine. It's a great system. But I just thought, let me see if what I think about the game is right. If it's, or not that it's, if it's a right way, there's many right ways. There's 100, 200 different correct ways to go. But will my ideas work in reality? And, and so as we built the academy, as we grew it, as we, we moved players forward and created opportunities, that was the thing that sort of drove me to say, yeah, I want to do this. I want to keep doing this and keep pushing and giving these players the opportunities. And you look at them around the world. I think from our first, you know, we only ever had 30, 35 players at the academy, but already six, six or seven of them are playing pro around the world. And there's another six or seven at college in the US. Some of them will go pro when they finish college. So it was that opportunity. Can is what's going on in my head about this game relevant to the real world scenario? It's amazing that at such a young age you would give a significant portion of your life to a place where a lot of people can't even point to on a map. And if you said, I'm going to Sierra Leone, people say, oh, I think my dad drives one of those. So it's it's quite an impressive uh, achievement to do that and I'll ask you about how you transitioned as a national team manager in a, in a second but before that I want to know because you've achieved so much because you've gone to so many interesting places objectively your your career is, is cool right there's a lot of cool things that you've done do you ever just kind of step outside of that and just pat yourself on the back for a moment and just go yeah this is pretty good I've done well here you know snap back into it and get the job done but do you ever look around and think I am really, really enjoying this, and I am very impressed with myself. Yeah, I think for me, it's one of those things that if I were to stop now, I would have done something that I was told could not be done. Um, you sort of mentioned at the start of the call the idea that you know being a football coach wasn't the sort of thing you know as a careers advisor. And I had that moment when I was sixteen, you know, sitting with the careers advisor. You know, what do you want to do? And I want to be a football coach. And the response came back, oh, you, you mean like a PE teacher in a school? And with all the greatest respect, you know, PE teaching is a very, you know, it's a job that needs to be done and there's some fantastic people doing it. But it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted, you know, and I still remember, you know, I grew up a Newcastle United fan. It was, you know, no, I want to, can I coach Newcastle United? Can I coach Northern Ireland? Can I do that? And at the time, you got to remember, Jose Mourinho hadn't come on the scene. At that time, it was a few years later that he would, and I use him as an example because he was, for the popular culture, the first. He wasn't the first, but for popular culture, by all intents and purposes, he was the first non-player to make it to the big time because most people wouldn't tell you that Rigo Saki also took that route. But so before Mourinho, no one really had a context. And so to be told, no, it's not real. It's not possible to go and do that is, you know, for me was almost, you know, someone, you know, the gloves coming off and someone saying, putting a challenge to me. And and so for me, 
what I've been able to do, yeah, for me is a justification of, of where we started and, and driving on when maybe people sort of thought, you know, should you maybe, yes, do this as a part-time career, but also go and get qualified to work in a bank or something like that. Whereas for me, it was if if I only do this, it's a bit like, I don't know if you watch those shows like Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, and the investors always say to the, the company owner, well, why haven't you invested? Why haven't you, why are you still working? a full-time job and doing this part-time. If you want this company, your child of a company to succeed, you should throw everything into it. And so for me, that's really what I did with football. I threw everything into it and it's sort of taken me to various places. And if I were to stop now, I think I could look and go, well, I, I achieved what people said wasn't possible. And and so for that, you know, I'm eternally grateful. But yeah, I definitely... It's funny. You 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 think you you strive for things in the game in terms of positions or maybe championships or trophies or results. It's amazing how quickly you move on from them. That you don't look back. You know, when we won our first championship trophy as a coaching staff, you enjoy it that evening, and then the next morning you're going right. Let's plan for the next one. It's it's amazing that you move on so quickly to the next ambition, to the next mountain to be climbed. I've, I found that uh, success can often be underwhelming because you don't, particularly as a coach, you're so switched on and plugged into the moment that you're always thinking uh, that sometimes you, you actually miss the opportunity to let go and to celebrate. And yeah, that, that's kind of the, the paradox of it because if you did let go, you probably wouldn't have had the concentration or the drive to have actually succeeded in the first place. But let me ask you mm. then, how do you go from Craig Bellamy Foundation to Sierra Leone men's national team coach at 27. That adds, from, from the outside looking in, that looks like one hell of a jump. And it was. Um, and I think, look, we all have to be honest with ourselves and appreciate that there are moments in our lives where we got fortunate. Um, people don't like to use the term luck. People, people use that saying of, oh, you know, luck doesn't exist. It's, you know, the people who work the hardest are the luckiest. And okay, that might be true, but luck does exist. <laughs> you know, things happen. You know, there's sliding doors moments. I, I was sat in Sierra Leone as the only A-licensed coach in the country. Um, I was on the ground and the previous coach of the national team resigned with three World Cup qualifiers. I think they'd lost away to Tunisia or something like that. And the chances of them qualifying for the World Cup were like five percent or something like that it's still mathematically possible but a very small chance and so he's resigned and it became quite obvious that the Sierra Leone FA were going to appoint a domestic coach because it would save them a bit of money they don't need um, flights they don't need visa costs you know all of the the logistical costs of bringing a coach from Europe or outside the country were something they could they could cut away and just focus on the salary if they appointed a domestic coach and so for me when I heard that sort of through the grapevine of Sierra Leone football my approach was well I need to get in a room and talk to these people and obviously I'd been in the country for three years we were the only professional residential academy in the country so people knew who we were and knew who I was in the country because we had the best young players we were dealing with youth international players etc and so to organize those meetings wasn't too difficult 
And yeah, it was to go in and meet with the, the Ministry of Sport and the Sierra Leone FA sort of delegation and sort of pitch what I felt. And, and look, for them as well, it's low risk. What ended up being the offer was, look, we've got three games left. We have the, the March international, no, sorry, we've got the June international window against Tunisia and Cape Verde. And then you've got um, the September international window against Equatorial Guinea. And so in essence, they're employing you for 20 days if you want, because it's two camps. And so for them, it's low risk. And for me, I'm already in the country. And so and I can keep doing my job at the academy whilst also doing this. And so it was a it was a right time, right place moment. If I was sat in Belfast applying for that job, it's not possible. I wouldn't have got it. Um, and if they were at a moment where they were going to go for a foreign coach, um, you wouldn't have got it because you would have been competing with all of the foreign coaches. But in essence, I it was a moment where the pool of applicants that they were seriously considered were all inside the borders of Sierra Leone. And I just happened to be the most qualified. And I ultimately went in and pitched and they had little to lose to give it to a 27 year old. And maybe I, I don't know what process they went through. Maybe they also considered, oh, if we do this, we'll get a bit of a media spin because it will pick up a bit of a media interest. So they may, I don't know, maybe they looked at that as well. But for me, all that was important was that the answer was yes. And then it's like, you know, and I got warned not to take it. There were so many people in Sierra Leone in football said this team are unmanageable. You know, there's a lot of party guys in there who just come back to visit their families and all of this, all of which I find not to be true um, once you were in the room in the building. But I was warned. I don't think there was anyone in Sierra Leone in football who advised I take that job. But for me, it was like, this might never come again. This opportunity might never come again. And and you've got to go for it. And and yeah, and it just, you know, it, it was the beginning of, of everything really in terms of my career and for my pro career in the game. So even if it doesn't work out, you've got to take those opportunities because of what you would learn from it and what it might also lead to. You managed to get them, correct me if I'm wrong, to is it 50th in the FIFA World Rankings? Yeah, um, it's funny, like people can say what they want about the rankings and they're different now. It's probably very difficult to do that now because the rankings changed how they work. So we moved from like the mid 90s up to 50th um, and we were seventh in Africa as well, 50th in the world and seventh in Africa. And it was funny at the time, there were these companies who would help you predict, you know, if you played certain friendly games and all of this, how you could sort of almost manage the rankings. Didn't matter to us because we never played friendly games with Sierra Leone. We didn't have the budget for it. But um, you were able to almost predict where you were going to be in the world rankings. And we sort of knew we were going to move up that month. And we looked at it and we thought we're going to be 51st which is the highest they'd ever been before, like 10 years previously. And we sort of thought, yeah, I think we're going to be 51st. I think we're going to tie with their record. But then when FIFA released the rankings and we were 50th, there was, a, there was definitely a cheer went up in the office. It was like, you know, look, the world rankings are what they are. It's, but here, it, it, was, it was a nice thing for the country. It was a great thing for the players. And um, just to show them that even though we weren't at the stage yet of qualifying for a major tournament, we were moving in the right direction. And, you know, for, for players who travel all around the world to represent their country, having that sort of positive reinforcement is very valuable. 
how did you achieve that with a bunch of party boys and no budget for friendlies? I think this was the thing, was that you went in, I think, look, Sierra Leone as a culture is a very colourful culture. Um, it's a beach country, you know, so people, the, the term work hard, play hard gets used far too much. And when, when someone says work hard, play hard, you always envisage that they probably play a bit more than they should. Um, but... What I found was these guys, and you got to remember, we weren't dealing with amateurs here. We had we had guys playing for Celtic, for Norwich City, for Bolton, for AC Milan, for Elfsborg, for you know we had players, for, you know, in MLS. We had players in the top leagues all around the world, earning significant amounts of money, and so they came back. And you know what? Yes, after we finished, you know, we played the game. Yes, some of the guys went out and let let off steam and, you know, they enjoyed driving their big car to the, the beach bar or whatever. But it always happened after the game. Um, and I just, I don't know, like, it was so strange when I went into Sierra Leone. One of the first things I got praised for was that all of the players were moving from the team hotel to the training ground in the same bus, because apparently that wasn't normal. Normally players in Sierra Leone took their big, their Hummers or their, you know, Land Rovers from the hotel to the training ground. And I was like, but why would you do that? Surely that's just a case of discipline. That's a case of not being grey on that. It's black or white. It's you have to be on the team bus. If you're not on the team bus, you've been left behind and you're not training and you'll be fine. But clearly that hadn't happened before. So we just went in and instilled boundaries. And and then look, we we also spoke to the players as well. Um, I think that was the thing. We went in and we knew, you know, myself as twenty seven, and because I am twenty seven, then everyone else on my coaching staff is young. You know, I think the oldest person on our staff was maybe like thirty two, and so you cannot go in and take the dic dictatorial approach. You can't go in and act like Alex Ferguson. You have to go in and be you know, in the in the trenches with the players and you've got to talk to them and you've got to ask them their opinion and you've got to convince them of why you want to do something. And so again, that's very at odds with definitely with Sierra Leonean culture where the younger person or the, the person who is further down the, the hierarchy is just expected to listen and do it. Um, and so for us to go in and take that more altogether approach, I think got a lot of buy-in from the players. Um, and it also helped. We managed to convince a few sort of foreign-born players of Sierra Leone um, ancestry to come and play for us. We had a few guys who played for England at youth level, opted to come and play for us. We had some guys who'd been born in the United States, opted to come and play for us. And so, yeah, that helped just expand the player pool. You said that there were players AC Milan, Celtic, Bolton, uh, playing some decent clubs. Now, you're 27 and your first... Uh, big job as national team manager you clearly did very very well in the role were there times where you felt out of your depth did you feel much imposter syndrome we went in i definitely think we knew the first training session was vitally important 
um, that and we just said, let's just go and do it. Let's. This is what we're going to do. We've been in this game a long time. You know, some of the guys I brought in with me were people who I sort of broke through at Red Bulls with, you know, who'd all been in the youth department at Red Bulls. My goalkeeping coach, Andrew Sparks, who's now at Southampton, you know, Tom Harris, who is now at North Carolina. And and we just said, look, we know what we're doing. We, we know how to run a good training session. We've been used to working with really top talented young players. So let's just go and run a training session. Let's go and see how, and let's make it fun. Let's make it enjoyable. And let's do all the things we've been doing for 10 years in the youth game. And and it worked. The players enjoyed it. They weren't being asked to stand around and listen to lectures all day. And so I think that was really key that we we didn't um we didn't sort of falter in that moment. But the other thing that was important was because I'd ultimately been in the boss sort of category with the academy for several years at this stage. You know, I'd had to make difficult calls then in terms of hiring and firing people, in terms of standing my ground in difficult moments. And so those moments also came with Sierra Leone. I, I still remember after we were just about to play Tunisia, our first game, we had a team meeting. So, you know, the chalk talk type thing, show some videos, tactics boards the day before the game. This is what we're going to do against Tunisia. And we were changing something from what they'd normally done in terms of how the attacking lineup was set up. And three major players hung around afterwards. So you had um, Kai Kamara, who obviously has had a huge career. You had uh, Tete Bangura, who just moved to um, the Turkish league for like 7 million euros. And you had uh, Mohamed Bangura, who was playing for Celtic. Celtic had just signed for 5 million euros. And... Um, the three of them sort of came and asked to talk to us and they were almost saying, look, why not? Why don't we just do what we've always done with the attack? And and so me and my assistant, Tom, said, right, come, let's have a chat, close the door. And they got up on the tactics board and we let them, we gave them their five minutes to sort of show us on the tactics board what they thought we should do. And then what we did, we listened to them, we asked a couple of questions and then I got back up on the tactics board and I walked them through maybe with a few extra layers that we would have done anyway with them prior to the game, but why we believed what we were proposing would work better in this game. And they listened to it and they went away and said, okay, yeah, the coaches know why they're doing what they're doing. They have that reason behind it. They're not just picking it out of thin air. And so they clearly went away out of that room. And I don't know the conversations that happened with other players, but I think it was probably, yeah, these guys are confident in what their approach is and they have reason and logic behind their approach. And so, but it would have been so easy in that moment with, you know, 20, 25 million euros worth of talent stood in front of you saying, we think we should do this for you to fold. But we'd been in situations where we had to stand our ground before in different environments. So that was a transferable skill that we were able to stand our ground and say, no, this is why we're doing it. And, and yeah, we ended up like it's still one of the biggest regrets is not winning that game because um, we were 1-0 up. We were then 2-1 up and Tunisia equalized in like the 91st minute. Um, to give them a draw. And it would have been our first ever win over Tunisia in history and in front of 40,000 people at the Shaka Stevens Stadium. But 
and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a nightmare of a goal to concede. It's on YouTube. Like you can't quite imagine how you've conceded that goal in the ninety first minute. Tired legs, tired minds, um, and it was frustrating. But we were the better team. We were the better team on the day. It worked, and and so you come away, and the players now they're like going, okay, we've went from being also runs to almost beating Tunisia in the case of one one week's work. So let's give these guys a chance. But I, I think it's really important how you you talked about a dictatorial culture and yet you've met the players on that level. You're already similar age, you've got similar uh, ideas to them and you're probably more able to relate to them as well. You've given them the time of day, you've allowed them their voice, you've given them some autonomy and some input, but you've also had the skill to back up and what you're saying and convince them. And I, I think that is excellent management and that is uh, very much a a modern approach uh, and so that I believe will get a lot of buy-in from the players do you feel this role then prepared you better for Uganda and Rwanda because you'd already been through it or or was there more learning on the job when you went to those places how, and how similar were the positions and the cultures yeah, like I think what I find, you're always learning because everything is different. You know, um, I'm a great one for analogies. I live in analogies. I sort of, my, I think in pictures. And so I, there's another great saying I love that, you know, no person ever walks through the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same person. Um, and so as you evolve and develop, you learn so much more about yourself and about the environment you're in. And so... But what you do understand is the role of a national team head coach is 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 the same in some ways as being a club coach, but is also very different in some ways. And in many ways, it's an ambassadorial role. Um, you know, you represent a nation. You know, in Uganda's case of like forty-four million people, um, in Sierra Leone, like I, I, at the time, I genuinely felt that probably behind the president of the country, I was probably the most recognizable sort of non-playing person in the country, you know, in terms of like an administrator or a, a sort of management person of the country. So you had the president of the country and then, you know, they were sticking me up on billboards and stuff. And, you know, you're being interviewed on CNN and things like that. And you're being asked about stuff that's not just football. You're being asked about um, the, the civil war you're being asked about um, Ebola. When you're in Rwanda, you're being asked about the genocide um, that happened years earlier. And so really a national team role is, is an ambassadorial role as well. And, and that's not just in Africa. You look in England, Gareth Southgate is asked questions about racism. He's asked questions about things that are happening in the country because he's the national team coach of, of the country. So that is the one thing you probably take from each of them and you learn more and more as you go is is how to fulfill that wider role better that being an international coach is not just about football it's about there's there's bigger things at play because you people want to talk to you and they're not just going to talk to you about football so <laughs> you see yourself on billboards that must be an out of body experience how do you cope with uh, having the weight of a nation on your shoulders and being so easily recognizable and probably 
the hopes and dreams of a lot of people are resting on on the success of the football team. Does it affect your sleep? Does it affect your ability to relax and unwind? Um, no, I think for me, I take it very seriously. I, I think it's helped that we've been reasonably successful um, in most of the roles. Like that's not to say every every step's been a good one, but in all three positions, we we improved results, we improved performances, we we took the team forward. Now, if we'd went in and we're losing loads of games, then you know maybe it might have been different. Um, you might have felt the pinch a little bit more, but we've generally improve the fortunes of the team and so that gets you positive feedback from a lot of people but you know for me you know i'm a fan as well you know i grew up hugely passionate about the game and and so i think you've got to try and engage with people as much as possible you've got to listen to people as much as possible but at the same time you know you also learn to be you know a person who's you know not in those environments when you don't need to be um, but there is definitely a big, you know, a big focus on it and people wanting to talk to you and wanting to have a conversation and want to give you their opinion. And, you know, but that's, you know, it's a privilege to do that. You know, I take I take great pride that I'm the person who gets to pick the team. Um, whether that team wins or loses, the fact is that it's my team sheet that gets handed to the referee every match day. And it's not the guys in the newspapers. It's not the guys on the sports channels. It's not the people down in the pubs and clubs. It's my team that goes out there. And, and for that, you know, you're willing to, you know, take a little bit of, you know, having to organize your life in a certain way to have that privilege. So between those three nations, have you had to adapt your, your tactics, your delivery, your man management style based on, on, on cultural things? Yes, like in a sense, there's this thing that, you know, it frustrates me and I'm sure it frustrates people of the continent of Africa significantly, but people view, you know, people don't talk about Europe as a place, yeah, but they talk Africa about Africa as a place, you know, and, and so, you know, and so it's, it's the idea of, you know, people wouldn't ask the question of, do you have to make cultural adaptations coaching an English team or coaching a Slovakian team, they would assume that, of course, they're different. Of course, their histories are different. Of course, what they, you know, how they react to situations are different. And it's no, that's exactly the same um, between Sierra Leone, Uganda and, and Rwanda. You know, all very different countries, um, all, you know, just very different day-to-day -day life for people and so yeah you've got to go in and you've got to understand but that's why one of my big things is you know i want i try to surround myself i always make sure i have local staff on my staff I, i've been in environments where they've said look bring bring everybody bring the whole band and um, we'll pay for all the salaries and i'm sort of having to hold the horses and go look maybe we don't need uh you know a foreign you know this position if there's a really good goalkeeping coach in the country already let's use him because not only is it it's their national team, but equally I need to lean on those people to understand the cultural impacts and the history of a country and what you can and can't do. And and so I've got to learn from them. And again, it's that idea because there's a hierarchical you know system in place in a lot of these countries going in and sort of sitting in an office and saying, guys, you need to tell me. And they're like, no, but you're the boss. And it's going, yeah, but I don't know everything. I was like, I've just landed here. 
you guys have lived here for 30, 40 years. Um, you understand the culture. It's your culture. Um, and so we've got to blend your culture with, you know, the international expertise that we bring in from outside, but it always has to be embedded in your culture. So there's a learning curve in all of them. And it's just about embedding yourself in those cultures. Were there ever times where the players or the staff would say something like, sorry, coach, we, we don't do it like that here. Uh, and you've had to almost uh, adapt or, or change because you've not realised potentially there's a cultural faux pas or there's an expectation placed on you based on on how things work in their society. Yeah, definitely. There is that idea in all walks of life that this is how things are done here. Now, sometimes that's just historical, but other times it can be cultural. Um, and so if it's historical, it's usually easier to change because it's like, well, look, the reason I'm here is you wanted something to change. If you didn't want something to change, why am I here? Um, and so if it's a historical thing, that's just been, this is the way we've always done a certain thing. It's a little bit easier to change. And, and actually young players, players in, the, in nature are young, you know, being in your mid twenties or late twenties is still young. You're still open to, you know, change and doing something new. And so it's easier to do that. Culturally, it's sometimes. Um, so, for example, in Rwanda, the players, we had an incident at one point where some of the players, you know, modern culture, modern global culture was to have your hair in certain ways. You know, you wanted to do hair in certain ways, but there was definitely some pushback that came from up on high that this doesn't represent the vision of Rwanda that we want the world to see. And so a few players... Uh, decided that they should shave their heads um, because this longer, more Western hairstyle, if you will, wasn't sort of deemed appropriate. So, yeah, there are those things that for me, I look at it and go, look, it's a hairstyle. But for other people, it can be quite sensitive. And so you have to appreciate that and, and sometimes just be like, it's not my job to tell you what's culturally appropriate or not. Um, and you, you have to work within the system. Um, where it's appropriate. No, I realise that we're getting to the end of time, so I want to go to Lithuania to Bangladesh. So you've gone from national team roles to club team roles. What are some of the biggest differences for you as a manager and a coach? I think in a club environment, you just get so much time with the players, which is which is fantastic. And to be honest, I did it the right way around. People will find that a funny, but. Oh, if, if it's obviously not possible for the large majority of football coaches, but if you had the opportunity to first coach international football and then go into club football, which obviously isn't the normal way, but when you're with international football, you're so finite with your time. You know, like literally our session plans would have the water breaks timed on them. Um, and then when I went into the club environment, this was almost like a point of humor. They're like, why are we timing the water breaks? And it's like, because well, I'm not having the players out here any longer than possible. And so what happened when we went into the club environment was the players actually really appreciated that we weren't wasting their time. The players were spending less time at the training ground because we were so almost military in our approach to timekeeping and in our approach to how we did things, we didn't waste time. And you learn that in the international environment because you have you just you have your players for like five or six days before a game. So you have to be. And and so I think in the club environment that was really appreciated. 
you have so much more time with your players to do individual work, to get them in the classroom, to sit them down. They're also in a different frame of mind because your players are coming in every day from their families. You know, they're coming in from, you know, their own house, their own bed. They've dropped the kids off at school. They're coming to training. Whereas in an international environment, you're in a team hotel. Um, you're with each other 24-7. And so that is a very artificial environment that has an impact on player stress levels. It has an impact on their sleep, all of these things. And and so that was a big change. But yeah, the like the big challenge in club football is you have so little time. You've got so much time with the players, but you've got so little time in terms of the the new side of football, shall I call it, the analysis, the sports science, etc. So in an international game, you've got three weeks in the office with your staff where you can prepare to play Tunisia or to play the Ivory Coast, and you can focus in on the minute detail of how can we narrow the gap in order to beat these teams. Whereas in a club environment, you're playing Tuesday, you know, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday, and it's you know, your analysts are having to work two or three games ahead of themselves. And equally, the level of detail you go into has to be less. You simply cannot go into the same detail in a club environment as you are able to in the national team environment, just because you've got so much more time with international. So, yeah, more time with players, but less time to prepare on the information side of it Mm. in a club environment. Now, we get a few jobs come up in, in Bangladesh and Lithuania occasionally. What are the football landscapes like in, in these countries? And I'm guessing that they, to me, on the surface, have not been to either of them. They seem poles apart. Yeah, so Lithuania is obviously an environment that has changed a bit in recent years. Um, but what was really interesting in Lithuania was that because it is a lower-income country, most people in Lithuania at the time I was there, you know, if you were like working in a bank or you were working in a supermarket or a teacher or something like that, you know, a, a, a standard job, let's say, you might have been bringing in five or 600 euros a month um, before tax in Lithuania. And that allowed you to live a, a, a normal life, you know, paid the groceries, kept the electricity on, etc. But what that then meant was footballers in the country, yes, aren't at a higher level than the general populace, but that higher level was like a thousand euros a month. And so it's quite, it's always quite interesting because then when you're going to try and sign players, you know, you're trying to sign, we had players from Spain, from Brazil, from Nigeria, and, you know, from Georgia, and you're going to go and negotiate with these players and not so much the players, but more their agents. And they're sort of like, they're really eager to come and play in Lithuania because it's Europe. And it's like, yeah, we want to play in Europe. It's a springboard league. If we do that well there, we might move to another league around Europe, which is also how we sold it. But then you're saying, right, we can offer you a thousand euros a month on an apartment um, to play in the Lithuanian Premier League. And the amount of, I think players, if left alone, probably would agree to it more often because they can see the potential. But then agents and whatnot get involved. And, you know, an agent's looking and going, well, 5% of a thousand euros isn't very much. And But then you're sort of going, yeah, but you'll live like a king in Lithuania on this. And, and so that was the challenge, whereas Bangladesh was completely different. Bangladesh is obviously, you know, a very much a developing nation. Um, Dhaka is the most populated city in the world per square. So most densely populated city in the world. 
um, and that has an impact on your lifestyle there and how you move. But equally, you then have this league that people would go, oh, the Bangladesh Premier League, you know, and they might roll their eyes a little bit at it. But you've got players on anything, like even the normal Bangladeshi player is on a few thousand dollars a month, right up to, like at my time, the top earning player in the league for one of our rivals was reported to be on around $25,000 a month, you know, to play in the Bangladeshi Premier League. So people would look at it and go, oh, the Bangladesh League, but you're sort of going, well, our annual salary budget was like over half a million dollars. And, you know, you've got players who you're signing for several thousand dollars a month to come play in that league. And so all of a sudden you're going, well, which is the the more professional league? Is it Lithuania that's, you know, paying 500, 1,000, 1,200 euros a month? Or is it the Bangladeshi league where, you know, foreign players good, and even Bangladeshi players can earn, you know, really good money in the league? So... Yeah, uh, that's why I always think people look around the world and think that there's this bias that's been developed over the years that the only place that football is serious is in Western Europe. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Um, You know, you can have an exceptional career in various parts of the world and you can have, you know, the passion for the game is huge in these different regions of the world. So, yeah, the, Western Europe is not the be-all and end-all of the pro game. So like I said earlier, <clears throat> pretty much every experience you've had could be worth a book in its own right. And I, I could talk to you all day, but I'm conscious of your time. So I'm going to finish up with, with two questions about the practicalities of, of, of coaching abroad. First one is you've managed to get an A license and a pro license while being uh, able to essentially be a globetrotter, go to all these different places. How did you manage to keep going through the license pathway while working in different countries? Um, it's a really easy answer. I spent an incredible amount of money to do it. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, like to do your pro license, you've got to be in country. I was in Rwanda when I was doing my pro license. And so you've got to turn up every month. You might get one. There was one session I didn't turn up for pre-agreed, which was presenting your match analysis that you'd done. And so what I did, though, was we set the cameras up and I recorded our analysis session with the national team and submitted it and sort of said we were playing Libya in a World Cup qualifier. And so game day minus one, where we're doing our match preparation and we're looking at very key details of Libya for sort of 20 minutes, and we recorded it and uh, sent it in, and UEFA were happy, and the Irish FA were happy to accept that. But that was the only time. So if you're thinking the pro license is 18 months, you've got the week at the start, the week at the end, and basically in 12 of those 18 months, you need to be in Belfast for one or two-day get-togethers. Um, I remember once flying from Rwanda to Dublin Airport, landing on the Friday night, driving up to Belfast, going to a um, an analysis, sort of learning how to use the analysis software we were being given on the Saturday from sort of nine till five. And then that night driving back to Dublin Airport and flying back to Rwanda. Um, so I was, in, I was in Ireland for like, I don't know, 18 hours. And to, to turn up for the day, so you're, you know, that, that. But again, I was incredibly fortunate. I was coaching a national team that were, you know, paying me a national team salary 
that meant I was able to to spend, you know, on transatlantic or, you know, transcontinental flights every month. Um, if I was coaching at a youth academy somewhere, I know you just wouldn't be able to do it. You couldn't afford it. So, again, we, we talk about a bit of luck and a bit of fortune along the way. Again, I was very fortunate to be in a role that enabled me to do my pro license, but it, it cost a lot of money. Oh, I can imagine. I've seen some coaches and courses that are flying in from all sorts of places. Well, I, I complained just about the petrol. <laughs> the flight. Yeah, but I, I come back to I come back to the thing I said earlier. It's like, are you all in or are you not? Um, and for me, it was like. You know, it's it's that again. You know, you you only know how far you can go if you're willing to push it. If you're willing to go too far, and yeah, so for me, it was like you know, we've we've went along this path and we've got to see it through now. And you know, whatever that costs, let's see what what is possible in this career in this life. And and at the end of it, we can we can debate and dissect whether it was worth it or not. And then as someone that's worked in lots of different places and. And being all around the world, coaching abroad is is difficult in the sense that you're away from your family, you're away from comfort zone. It's hard to maintain relationships and friendships. So, what's been maybe one of the hardest things for you to deal with as a coach that has uh, spent predominantly most of your time abroad? I think one of the hard things, which I actually sat around sort of resolving this last year, is where are you from? You know, where is home? Um, now, home is obviously Ireland, but I left Ireland at very young. You know, I was 18. And so I've been away from home for coming up on 20 years now. So, yes, my family are there and it will always be home in that sense. But it's not where I'm from. I've spent more of my life outside of Ireland than in it. So it's, you know, I go back to Belfast and Lisburn and I, I love being there. I love catching up with friends. But at the same time, their lived experience is not mine. And, and so we, we share an historical and a family bond, but we don't really share a lived experience bond. And actually, the people you're closest to in life or the people you have a lived experience with um, is my finding, is sort of what I find over the years. And so what that meant then was anytime you leave a position or leave a job, you're sort of sat in an airplane and you're thinking, well, I'm sort of technically homeless <laughs> because where am I going now? I need to go and like rent an apartment or something. And so I sort of corrected that this year by buying my own house um, in, in the south of Spain um, to say this is home. This is where, you know, we're not going to rent it out. We're not going to do anything. We're going to set it up so that whether I'm on holiday or whether I'm, you know, it's, it's just, it's where my roots can be. And, and I think that helps knowing that you've always got somewhere to go back to. Um, because when you don't have that, it can be a bit stressful. But yeah, I just, I think that's the thing is that you go down a path that is different. Um, if you're moving around the world, people don't have the reference points you have. So I might tell someone a story about something that happened in Ghana or Sierra Leone whilst we're sat in you know, a restaurant in Belfast, but you sort of know that they do not have a reference for what you're talking about because it's so outside of the world that they live in. And that's okay, but it's just a reality of life. Hmm. They kind of gloss over and look at you like you're an alien, don't they? Like, what is... Well, I, I think I, th I think sometimes what you find is is conversations with family and friends. If it's about what you do, 
can feel very similar to conversations with someone you don't know, uh, you know, a supporter. Um, and and so actually for me, yes, if people want to talk about football, I'm more than happy to because people are interested. But for me, you know, I try my best to, you know, read and understand other things in the world. So that what we're talking about isn't football um, because, yeah, it can be very quickly become, you know, a supporter talking to you. And that's not really a nice, it's not a nice feeling, I think, when it's someone you've known your entire life. Before you go, would you like to tell us <clears throat> what is mind, body and ball? So mind, body and ball is something we're sort of just starting to sort of get off the ground a little bit. It's the So it's sort of a company we've set up um, for me personally and some guys I'm working with that very much it's, it's the idea of that personal attention um, that either coaches or players might need. Because I think in the modern world, it's very difficult to get that personalized attention in terms of how do you succeed as an individual in a team environment. Um, and so the idea that it can be supplementary, whether it's a coach, whether it's a player who you work with via video chats like this, maybe in person, and for them to understand what can they do to maximize themselves in a technical or tactical aspect, the ball, how they can physically be better, because I've yet to meet a player who can't physically be better. Um, I've not worked with Cristiano Ronaldo. For Song is the importance of, of our mind and, and also um, emotionally in football, how that impacts us, but it has a huge impact. It has a huge impact how what's going on, you know, between our ears and, you know, we're at the training ground for a few hours a day, but what's going on the rest of our lives and how do we incorporate that to help us be a successful person, really? Yeah, so that's something we've not really, it's out there. We haven't pushed it too much because we want to make sure it's right. Um, but the idea is that personal tailored attention that an individual can can utilize to sort of maximize themselves in whatever they're doing, whether it's as a player, whether it's as a coach. Um, and to be honest, you know, who knows down the line, it might even it might even spread its wings beyond the sporting context. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on. You're someone that I've wanted to talk to you for years, not just a, uh, as a podcast guest, but someone that I, I've wanted to to listen to and learn from. You, your journey is fascinating. You've done some incredible things along the way. And like I've said before, it's great to be able to watch and to almost live vicariously through yourself and to see the great things you do. And you are a wonderful example for coaches who want to live and work abroad. Thank you for being so candid. Thank you for sharing your insight and thank you for giving you time for us to listen to your stories. No, thank you very much. It's been, it's been good to sort of take a walk down memory lane on a few things. Thoroughly enjoyable to talk to Johnny and listen to his exciting and inspirational career. I love learning about the successes of all the great coaches out there, exploring the world and becoming better coaches, achieving wonderful things. Remember, for opportunities abroad, we thought you covered on the British Football Coaches Network. Sign up today to access the jobs world and see what opportunities await you. See you next time.